Spirit's full. Amen. Good morning, church family. It's good to be with you. It's good to be in the house of the Lord today. This is the day the Lord has made. We'll rejoice and be glad in it. And um, uh, we just hope if you're feeling new here at the church, in just a very short amount of time, you'll just feel you'll just feel the Lord's presence here and experience Him as we worship together. Um, one of the tasks of proper parenting is um, helping to instruct, uh, not just when we're children, but all throughout our lives, helping to be instructed about what a godly perspective of um, victory and what a godly perspective of hardship and suffering look like. And we need both. And today we're going to consider a passage of Scripture that will mentor us if we are willing, and disciple us into God's perspective on hardship, on hardship. I'm thinking about um, an opinion poll that was once administered by a group called the Barna Group, the Barna Group, and they took an opinion poll with this question. If, if you could ask God just one question and you knew he would give you an answer, what question would that be? Well, the most common response was, why is there pain and suffering in the world? It's the problem of suffering, the problem of evil. And anybody who considers Christianity or who is considering Christianity will sooner or later come upon this particular question. You know, if God is all-powerful, if God is all-knowing, if God is all-good, and we believe He is, how can evil exist? How, how does that get reconciled? How can a loving God allow pain and tragedy? Uh, it's a hard question. It's a very hard question. And our text today addresses that question. It's big. And the text that we're going to look at doesn't answer everything about why undeserved suffering happens. I only have about 30 minutes. <laughs> it's a big topic. And, and I wouldn't even go so far as to say that just there's one particular verse or passage that in and of itself answers the whole question. You, you've got, it takes the whole Bible because it's such a big question. But I will say that the text that we're going to look at gives some light about what God is doing when His people experience undeserved suffering. So if you have your Bibles, would you please meet me in the New Testament book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. And I'm going to read verses 4 through 11. And these verses teach us about undeserved suffering. We'll look at the entire paragraph through 17, but I'm just going to read through verse 11. As I'm reading this verse, I would just ask you to pay attention or listen for a repeated word. This word shows up nine times in the verses that I'm going to read, and it's a word that gives clarity to this issue of, of undeserved suffering. Hear these words from the word. In your struggle against sin, 
you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they, the earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, the father of spirits, our heavenly father, he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is God's word. So often when people are asking me um, this hard question, you know, why am I suffering? Why is there so much pain and suffering in this world, in my life? Um, I have to really pay attention to the dynamics of the question. Uh, because, I, I mean, sometimes the question is, is not so much a search for an explanation as much as it is a cry for help. And so sometimes what's really going on is that the, the person who's asking the question is wanting empathy or wanting some expression, some concrete expression of love. So I think it's really important when we're interacting with someone who might ask you this question to pray, Lord, what's going on here? How can I best respond to the heart behind the question? And that's actually kind of how I'll put it. What's going on with the heart behind the question here? You know? And, and I'm, I might think of it this way. Is, is the question, is it coming from the head or is it coming from the heart? And I don't mean that in terms of hierarchy. I just mean there's just two different levels here. We need to be able to discern what's going on here. Now, there are some folks who really want to know. I, I, I really want to try to know and grasp in my mind on a cognitive level what's happening here. Help explain that. And so what I love about this text is that it offers both. It offers pastoral comfort. It also offers a biblical rational truth. And here we have this preacher who just loves the church and, and actually can't be with the church right now, all right? Um, but is sending this sermon and wants to come alongside the congregation that the preacher loves, this hurting congregation, and try to extend comfort for the heart and also truth for the head. The, the, the preacher is writing Christians facing persecution some have been imprisoned for their faith. Uh, others have been harassed because they've given assistance to those in prison. 
Still others have lost property. It's been confiscated. It's getting hard. Some are shrinking back. And they need their pastor to come alongside and speak to the head and speak to the heart. They need both encouragement and then they also need exhortation. They need to know life is hard. God is good. Keep moving. Keep moving. And I really think that's what's going on here. And so the preacher in these verses will answer three questions that I would pose to us this morning. The first question is, what is God doing? What's God doing? When I experience undeserved suffering, and particularly for my faith in Christ, what is God doing? That's question number one. Question number two is, why? Why is God doing this? That is to say, what is his purpose behind this? Question two. And then three is, what does God want from me? What does God want? What's God doing? Why is God doing this? And what does God want from me? Those are the questions that I want us to consider here this morning. First, what is God doing? And that takes us to the word that I ask you to pay attention to that was repeated nine times. What is that word? Talk to me. Discipline, yeah, discipline, that's right, discipline. But, but, okay, what do we mean by discipline, though? See, it's very important. What do we mean by discipline? Uh, in this context, family, the discipline is not punitive. It's not, it's not punitive. Here, as we'll see as the context develops, the kind of discipline is developmental, developmental. God is putting us through a rigorous, attentive, developmental training experience so that when we emerge on the other side, we'll be different than what we are right now. So, so something will have changed about us. So we're more mature. We're tempered. We, we have a more grown-up perspective. So, so in other words, what we're learning here is that when you face undeserved suffering, specifically for your faith in Jesus Christ, it's not because God is angry with you. And it's not because God is attentive to your plight. And it's not because you've been lost in the system. No. No, the word discipline here uh, comes from the Greek word. It's the word paideia. Paideia. On, on three, say that. One, two, three. Paideia. One, two, three. Paideia, that's right. Paideia, paideia. What is paideia? Paideia is the act of providing guidance for responsible living. Okay? That's what paideia is. And you might say, well, that, there's nothing particularly religious about that, and you're right. So paideia was originally not a re religious word. It, it was a secular word uh, that, that Greek fathers understood. So, so paideia is a course of study that Greek fathers utilized to rear their children. So back then, your father was your primary school teacher. Back then, or, or better still, your father was your primary superintendent who then made sure you had teachers in various subjects. And some of them could be like academics or literature or reading or languages or, or mathematics or sciences. Others might be, have to do with uh, the trades that you'd learn a skill. Or others might have to do with sport. Uh, or some might be even military training. 
So, so there, it was a, a multifaceted uh, program of development providing guidance for responsible living. So, so why? So that you would become an educated, civilized, skilled citizen of the Greek world. That's why. Paideia carries with it the idea that your father cares enough about you to take the time and effort to invest in you. So, so paideia means that you're part of the family. And paideia means that remaining a toddler is not an option. Paideia means that there are responsibilities and contributions expected of you as part of God's family. Paideia. So paideia means privilege. Privilege. Paideia. Now, this happens in multiple occasions in the Bible. And this is an example of how Christianity takes a secular word and baptizes it. And that's what's going on here. Hebrews chapter 12 takes this secular word, paideia, and Christianizes it. See, And so when paideia happens in Christ, we become mature emotionally, spiritually, psychologically. We become, we become sound. We, we, we have more of an adult point of view. We, we are equipped to handle responsibilities that we could not handle before. So paideia in Christ can give us wisdom. Paideia makes us resilient. Paideia makes us refined. And I'll even use the word cultured. Cultured in Christ. Yes. Yes. Yeah, paideia is evidence that God values me enough to put me through a training curriculum so that I'll be changed on the other side of that curriculum. Paideia is God's way of proving that we belong to him. So, so Hebrews 12 teaches us that our comfort is not to be found in the absence of hardship, rather in the presence of our Heavenly Father. And I say this because I think the church had just forgotten this. Um, and so the preacher lovingly gives a reality check. Huh? You see verse 4? You know, the, preacher, the preacher says, look, in your struggle against sin... You've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Okay? Now, if you just take that in and of itself, it sounds a lot like, you know, suck it up, buttercup. I mean, but that's not, that's not what the context is. You've got to back up a little bit. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. So, and then the preacher says, consider him. And the preacher says, matter-of-factly, look, you... Things are bad, but, but you haven't been crucified. You haven't. You've not shed blood. And no one has been sought in two. Remember Hebrews 11? No one has been stoned to death. No, no one has, has been beheaded by the sword. So, yes, things are bad, but, but they're not that bad. Yet they've forgotten. Verse 5. Have you forgotten? Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? So su suffering can do that, can't it? Suffering can induce 
what Paul David Tripp calls um, identity amnesia. Identity amnesia. Have you forgotten? See, identity amnesia. Tripp says, our hearts tend to forget who the Bible says we are. And, and why is that important? He says, well, because the identity we assign ourselves will impact everything we say and think and do in this life. He makes the point that people either find their identity on a horizontal plane or a vertical plane. And if we, if we find our primary identity, I mean our primary identity, the identity that, you know, if, 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 you, just, if you took away or if it were destroyed, then we, we'd just be undone. But if we find ourselves and our identity horizontally, then we're going to say things like, you know, I am my achievements or I am my possessions, or I am my personal righteousness, or I am my relationships, or I am my job, uh, or if you're a preacher, uh, I, I am only as good as my last sermon, you know. And, and, and you know, none of these that I've mentioned are bad in and of themselves, but it's just that they're never protected from hardship. And when they are taken by death or disease or termination or economic downturn, they can leave you with identity amnesia. Who am I? Verse 5 says, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? So these verses are intended to trigger a vertical identity recall. I want you to recall what God is doing in your hardship. I belong to God. I belong to him. And when hardship comes, yes, I am to weep and cry and lament and hurt because it hurts. And, and I will also use the mind that God has given me to think clearly. I will use my reasoning capacities to inform me that I'm being trained with paideia by the God who is also my heavenly father. And furthermore, my Heavenly Father gives me resources so that I can understand and interpret what's going on when I'm in my hardship. And do you know what the chief resource that God our Heavenly Father gives to us in our hardship? That's right, His Word. His Word. Don't you see? Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6, it's offset in many of your Bibles. Why is that? Because it's a direct quote from Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. Think, 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 think. Think what the preacher is teaching the congregation to do by way of referring to the Old Testament scriptures. He's, the preacher's training the believers to let God's word interpret your situation. Brothers and sisters, I plead with you, please let God's word decipher your pain, not the lead story on the nightly news. These verses challenge us to take everything that happens in our lives, everything, and, and not just look at it in and of itself. Don't just look at the suffering in and of itself. This is one of the great differences that believers have from unbelievers. When, when anything goes wrong in the lives of unbelievers, what do they have to fall back on? We have the Bible. I mean, we are heirs of Christ's coming kingdom. We are sons and daughters of God's family. And so we are to take 
everything, everything that happens to us, the good, the bad, the ugly, the triumphs, the, the defeats, the hardships, the sufferings, and we are to sift them through the text of God's Word. And we are to let the Bible, we are to let the Bible's exhortations address us address us the exhortation that addresses you that word address means reason to reason with so so let the bible reason with your heart and mind let the bible argue with you let the bible help you think over what's going on i mean what a resource we have the bible does not merely comfort our hearts it speaks to our minds. It addresses our minds. It gives an argument. It gives a reason. Yes, Psalm 23 is valuable, and we receive comfort in hardship, for the Lord does not send us through the shadow valley of death alone. Yes, yes, He's with us. At the same time, we need to understand that God's Word lawyers us and reasons with us with arguments and logic. There is a certain logic to your struggle. So follow the, follow the logic. And, and, and that takes us to question number two. What's God's purpose? Why, Paideia? So here's, here's the why. Here. The, these verses say that, the, that, that, that my struggle is supervised by the God who is sculpting me into sacredness. He's sculpting me into sacredness. Notice it didn't say he's massaging me into sacredness. He's sculpting me, which requires a chisel and a hammer, and the chisel's blade is against the marble of stone and the strike of the hammer to the chisel. And it hurts. That sculpting, shaping, that's what God is doing. Why? Because I'm his child. He loves me. He has given us new birth through his firstborn son, Jesus. And this new birth is life that is truly life. And it's life that goes beyond this life, that extends to the new heavens and the new earth. That's why Paul says in Romans, and we know, we know that in all things God works for the good. Now, Paul didn't say that everything that happens to your life is good. He says that in all things God works for the good to those who love him and are called according to his purposes. So, so here it is. Here's our big idea in these verses. Our heavenly Father is in our struggle for our good that we may share his holiness that's what we're learning here we're learning that god is in this for our goodness to share his holiness that's the intent that's what that's what we're being asked to believe here will you will you, will you believe this please you see if it's true that god our father is the architect and builder of an eternal city if it's true that he's the architect and builder of a city with foundations, eternal foundations. And if it's true that, that here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come, that's Hebrews 13, 14. 
do you really think that when you die and you take your last breath that you're just going to go up and put on a white robe and strum a harp in heaven on the clouds? <laughs> where, where is that in the Bible, see? It, it, it's, it's nowhere. What's happening is that God is preparing us in the here and now for the coming new heavens and new earth. He wants us ready by the time the city is ready. So this life is his gymnasium. His gymnasium for our paideia, for holiness. God wants to share his holiness with us. And this requires training. Verse 11, to those who have been trained by it. And that's literally the word, to those who have been gymnasiumed by it. It's our word gymnasium. God is gymnasiuming us so that we will look and act and think more and more like Jesus, see? So, now, I mean, that takes, that takes training. And, and we know this is true on a physical level, right? So, you know, I go to my strength training class, body pump. And, uh, you know, I've been going for several years now. I just got back after I finished schooling and all that. And then I've been going back and got the rhythm of going back. But you know what? Even they've never offered pedicures at Body Pump. Have they? Have they? Those of you been, they don't. See? And, 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 and my, my instructor typically says things like, okay, everyone, in the next 50 minutes, we're going to do 900 reps. There's going to be a lot of push-ups. This is going to be fun. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not until it's over. And you see, verse eleven. For the moment, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, later, it it. So so the so the the yield of unpleasant paideia is this peaceful fruit of righteousness, but to those who have been trained by it. So, so just because I go to class doesn't mean I'm going to get fit. Because I'm not going to be able to get fit by just watching. Right? I, I've got to load the bar. I, I'm going to have to raise the bar. I'm going to have to do the squats and the lunges and the presses and the curls and the abs. I have to do that. I have to do that. My, my instructor has never offered to do that for me. My, my instructor can show me, but can't get fit for me. And as your pastor who loves you, I can pray with you and for you. And I would like to offer you, uh, if you would like prayer in the fireside room afterwards, I'm, I'm, we'll be there. I can pray with you and for you, but I can't do your praying for you. And I can read the scripture with you and to you, but I can't do your scripture reading for you. Can't. Can't do your serving for you. So, so life is God's gymnasium where we endure His paideia in order to share His holiness. See, that's the why. Will you, will you please believe that? He has your goodness in mind. He does. So, so now what? We've talked about the what. We've talked about the why. So now what? what? What's he want from us? Well, 
Here's what he wants. He wants three do's and, and three don'ts, okay? So let's talk about the don'ts first. The first don't. Don't regard paideia lightly. Don't regard it lightly. That's up in verse 5. My son, do not regard lightly the paideia of the Lord. So don't belittle God's paideia. You, you have a mind, and your mind has the capacity to affect your heart. And so, so as Paul said in Romans, if you set your mind on the Spirit, so that brings life. If you set your mind on the flesh, that brings death. But your mind, God's given you the capacity, the remarkable capacity to set your mind. So, so set your mind. And, 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 and so don't take this lightly. Don't be in denial of it or refuse to acknowledge it. Take it seriously. Take, I Lean into this. Say with Psalm 119, verse 71. Psalm 119, verse 71. It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. God, it was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. All right. Don't regard it lightly. Secondly, don't become weary to the point of quitting. Now, that's also in verse 5. Don't be weary when reproved by him. So, so we can be weary to the point of complaining, which leads to quitting. So, so just because you go through difficult times doesn't mean you're going to benefit by them. See? Please don't waste your cancer. Please don't waste your cancer. And the only way we're going to benefit is by situating our suffering in the light of God's Word and letting it sculpt you into His sacredness. Yeah, 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 yeah. Don't regard it lightly. Don't become weary. And then, and this is verse 15, don't become bitter. Don't become bitter. See, see to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And, and so the preacher gives this cautionary tale of the Old Testament Esau, Jacob and Esau, Esau, who was, who was a man of his appetite. He spent his life pursuing his appetites. And he sold his birthright for a pot of stew. And he, his heart became so callous and so hard and so distant that that he had no ability to repent. It's, so it's not like he tried to repent and God rejected it. It's that, is that his life and his heart had become so calloused, he just, he couldn't. You know, he, there was no ability to see how great God's mercy was. And there was no ability to feel horrible and broken about his sin and, and turn away from it to the living God. There was no ability because his heart was so calloused. It can happen. It happened to him. Don't let it happen to you. Don't let it happen to you. Don't regard it lightly. Don't become weary. Don't, don't let a root of bitterness callous your heart. Three don'ts. And now three do's. Three do's. You see them? Uh, stay in the ready stance. That's verse 12. Stay in the ready stance. Keep your hands up. This is a fight. Keep your mitts up. Let's go. And strengthen your knees. Get in the ready stance. Keep your hands up. Pay attention to your form. Pay attention. Look alive. Stay in the ready stance. 
And then secondly, stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. A train is freest when it stays on the track. So stay in your lane. Don't drift from the path that's been lit by God's word. No off-roading. That's how you sprain your ankle, the scripture says. See, see. Make straight paths for your feet, that what is lame may not be put out of a joint, but rather may be healed. So stay in your lane. All right? Stay ready, stay in your lane. And then thirdly, strive for peace and holiness. Strive for, that's verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone. Do you bring peace into whatever room you enter? Is, is your culture at work or at home, is your culture improved by your presence? Is, is there a notable quality of, to your life? Strive for peace and for holiness. That's, those are the do's. Those are the do's. See, our, our, our Heavenly Father's in this, and it's for our good. And, and it is for our good, but God doesn't just want us good. He wants us holy. He, listen to me. Someone put it this way. There should be no human explanation for your life. If, if you're a follower of Christ, your life should testify to the power of the gospel, not to the power of your strength or your grandeur. So, and, and it takes the Father's sculpting hands to shape us into remarkable, extraordinary, mature, prepared sons and daughters of the kingdom. He wants us ready for eternity. I want you to believe this, church. This is truth. I want you to believe God's word in your hardship, that he's getting you ready. He's experiencing, he, he, wants, he, he wants you to get ready for eternity. So, so you are experiencing paideia, a training ground, an apprenticeship for the life to come. And, and so just as you did your student teaching uh, to prepare you for the work of being the main classroom teacher, and just as you did your supervised residency to prepare you for unsupervised clinical practice, and just as you went to boot camp or marine training recruit camp to train you for your responsibilities in the military, just as you spent hours in that flight simulation to prepare you to fly solo, and just as you prepared a, your apprenticeship season for the trades, all of those struggles and challenges and hardships are meant to sculpt you and shape you so that you can be an effective heir for the responsibilities God has both in this life and the life to come. And, and please know this, church, please know this. Whatever you're in, know that Jesus went in before you. That's what we learn in Hebrews 5.8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. I close with a quote by Tim Keller. He said, Jesus lost all glory so that we would be clothed in it. He was shut out so that we could get access. He was bound and nailed so that we could be free. He was cast out so that we could come near. And Jesus took away the only kind of suffering that can really destroy you, and that is being cast away from God. He took all of that suffering on himself so that any suffering that comes to you will make you sacred. So, so a lump of coal under pressure becomes a, a glorious diamond, right? And the suffering of a person in Christ can only turn that person into a gem of sacred beauty. 
Jesus Christ suffered, not so that we would never suffer, but so that when we suffer, we will be like him. His suffering led to glory. And when you know glory is coming, and it is, you can endure. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father,